here's a dirty secret. All the clients fail at some point or another. It's just much more obvious when the dominant client fails. That's one reason why it's been a bit more spectacular in those cases. I think for Prism, you know, they've built a terrific community. They were first, they've got a great origin story. They worked really hard for a couple of years to build out a community around test nuts that they ran, that none of the rest of us were, were running. We were all a bit later to the party and they became the default choice. Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Today's show is sponsored by Interpop and the Sun Exchange. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi guys, thanks for coming back to another episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. I'm Christine Kim, Research Associate at Coindesk, and I'm joined by my ever so British co-host, Ben Edgington, Lead Product Owner of Teku at Consensus. Hi, Ben. Hey, Christine. Great to be back with you. Uh, yeah, I'm really well. I love a bit of drama. And we had some drama at the weekend, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you about it. Yeah, on the agenda today, we're going to be chatting about the first major incident to impact Ethereum 2.0 stakers and validator rewards. We saw network participation rates drop, hundreds of blocks on the network missed, and developers just scrambling to figure out what exactly went wrong. So we'll be talking about that, and we're also going to be chatting a little bit about the ongoing Rayonism hackathon and the larger scaling Ethereum event happening around it that has sparked some interesting discussions about how users and developers should be looking forward to what comes after Ethereum completes its merge to proof of stake. So without further ado, Ben, can you give our listeners the lowdown of what happened this past Saturday and why the network suddenly stopped producing blocks? So this was very early on my Saturday morning. So I, I woke up to this and what had happened around 1 a.m. my time was that suddenly about 70% of the blocks that the network was expecting were just missing. They weren't being produced at all. So we have this beacon chain that runs. It's, it's just done a million slots. A slot is 12 seconds. So And normally there's a block in every slot. That's how it's designed to work optimally. We have these slots going by every 12 seconds. And we expect to see a block there. And over the first million or so slots, we were missing maybe 1% of blocks, which, you know, sometimes validators are down or sometimes uh, the block goes missing on the network for some reason. And 1% is fine. That's not an issue at all. But suddenly uh, on Saturday morning, we were missing 70% of the blocks that we were expected. So 70% of slots were empty, which was sudden and unexpected. And and frankly, really bad. Yeah. Do you know what caused that? Like, why were we seeing these blocks go missed? As you said, you know, it could be that validators are just having a bad day. A lot of people turned off their machines, maybe the network itself. What are some of the reasons behind why this happened and why it was actually an issue with the code of software, one of the clients of the Ethereum 2.0 network and not something that was normal or something that we could easily ignore? 
So this was uh, action stations. This is definitely not within normal parameters for, for the network. There was a bit of a scramble to find out what was the root cause, and it turned out to be a client bug. So it was, in fact, on the Prism client. And I think the most surprising thing was that it turns out that the Prism client is running 70% of the validators on the network. So there was this bug, which meant that it was unable to produce blocks for a period. And that accounts for 70% of the blocks being missing. Prism is dominant. And because uh, the issue was with that client, it was very obvious on the network. If it had been one of the other clients, the impact would have been much less severe in that case. Gotcha. And when you say that 70%, Prism makes up 70%, and that's why 70% of the blocks are missed, what are some of the fallout effects of missing blocks? How were validators who are running Prism software impacted by this? How were other clients? So for me, for Coindesk, we run an Ethereum 2.0 validator and we run the Lighthouse client. We didn't see rewards go down. We saw Lighthouse, our Zelda node, how we call her, our operations continue to progress as normal. I mean, with 70% of clients down, how did it impact the rest of the network? What were other validators seeing? What were Prism validators seeing on their dashboard? So most of the activity on the network is validating, which is voting for uh, blocks and slots. And that carried on as normal. So the Prism clients were, were validating correctly. And so were uh, all the others, Teku and Lighthouse and Nimbus. They were producing votes as usual. But the problem is that these votes need to get into blocks and there's limited space in the blocks. So if the blocks are missing, then this huge queue of attestations builds up and not all of them are going to get into blocks. Uh, I saw on my node that it was attestations were getting in, but were heavily delayed. That results in some penalties, not huge penalties. And some attestations were not getting into blocks at all, were, were dropped completely. Overall reward. So the upshot of that is that participation rates, which is the proportion of clients that are correctly validating the network, participation rates dropped down to around 80% or so on the network, which is not really sufficient. One of the things that I understand is if 70% of validators are not working, they're not doing their job, they're not producing blocks, that means the other 30% it needs to step up. They're the ones who have to take care of, of creating the blocks, of making sure that the blockchain continues to run. And as I understand this dynamic of when there's fewer number of validators actively maintaining the chain, all of those validators get more rewards, as in they're rewarded for the fact that the pool of people being paid to secure the Ethereum 2.0 network is smaller, they get paid more. But then if you know the number of validators continues to increase, there's a lot more people on the network uh, validating, then that means that the payment for securing the network goes down per individual validator. Have we found a fix to this issue on Saturday? As I understand, there was a new code, a new client version for Prism released a couple hours after the issue was found out by developers. But as I read in your newsletter, Ben, there's still a possibility that this problem could happen again. How small mm. is that chance? And um, how, how sure are we that this fix has really taken care of this issue and that we know that this issue won't come back up again? So the PRISM team did a huge load of work over the weekend and, and respect to them. So the initial issue resolved itself after three hours or so. So this is an interesting property. So the clients, the ETH2 clients, 
has a view of the ETH1 chain and has to decide what it thinks the deposit contract looks like and the state of that contract. And there was a bug which caused the Prism client to have an inaccurate view of that contract, which meant it couldn't propose blocks because it needs to include data from that contract in blocks. But every seven hours, we vote in a new state of the ETH1 deposit contract. And it just so happened that when the, the next one was voted in, which was about three hours after the incident, then the Prism client was fine again and started proposing blocks and the problem resolved itself. So that was nice. That bought a bit of time, a bit of breathing space. However, even after we'd run for like five months uh, without seeing any incident like this at all, it happened again on Sunday morning, which is incredible. So we had two incidents over the weekend. That was before Prism had managed to QA their fix and get it into a release. I believe they've got to the root cause. You know, they spent a lot of time and care on fixing this. So I don't expect to see this same issue again. Once Prism clients have updated, it, it should be done, should be gone. Just like how the Prism team tried to figure out the root cause of why blocks were being missed because of their software, there's also a question to ask, what is the root cause of why so many people are running Prism? Is it that much more user-friendly than the other Ethereum 2.0 software clients? Are we finding that Prism has a better track record of having more successful validators, validators who are earning more rewards through their software than other software. And to be frank, I don't think that's the case because on Ethereum today, as we know it, not Ethereum 2.0, the proof of work chain, we've also got this issue with client diversity in that many people are running the Geth software client. One of the reasons why I think that is, is because Geth has an active developer team that the Ethereum community knows and trusts. There's other validator clients such as Open Ethereum that has a history of these bugs of these failures of these issues that people have come to know about and then move away from. I think that Geth is one of the most well-known among the Ethereum clients, but when it comes to Ethereum 2.0 clients, if anything, I think we've seen the Prism client fail the most. I mean, in the Madasha testnet, that failure was also Prism's fault. <laughs> okay, I'm not trying to like assign blame here, but I'm trying to figure out why it is that everyone mm is so enamored and attracted to the Prism client. I can see some of the rationale in the Ethereum environment because Geth has a very good track record. But here on Ethereum 2.0, Prism really doesn't have that. I tend to think that it might be perhaps the funding that Prism has more so than other Ethereum 2.0 clients. Ben, what are your thoughts? Do you agree? <laughs> Do you think there are some other factors we should consider as to why uh, users seem to all go to Prism? <laughs> Here's a dirty secret. All the clients fail at some point or another. It's just much more obvious when the dominant client fails. So that's one reason why it's been a bit more spectacular in those cases. I think for Prism, you know, they've built a terrific community. They were first, they've got a great origin story. They worked really hard for a couple of years to build out a community around testnets that they ran that none of the rest of us were, were running. We were all a bit later to the party. And they became the default choice, which is great. I mean, they, you know, respect to the team and they work really hard to do that. But as of today, you know, all the clients functionally and usability and documentation wise and um, reliability wise, they're all pretty much on a par. There's no reason to choose one client over another, no objective reason at all. They're, they're all very capable and very professional. 
And, you know, there might be niche cases where Nimbus, for example, is targeted at low power devices. You know, Teku, we've kind of really designed it for the, the large staker, the professional staker. But those are just sort of positioning that don't change the fundamental nature of the client. They're all excellent clients and none of them will uh, let you down. Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. With the Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact. Visit thesunexchange.com slash coindesk to buy solar cells and automatically lease them to power businesses, schools, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Get a free solar cell with your first purchase at thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. That's thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. So that's really interesting. I'm glad that we debriefed the first major incident on the Ethereum 2.0 network. One of the things I want to move into starting to talk about now is the future of the Ethereum 2.0 network and what's supposed to happen to it after it finally merges into Ethereum. And the reason why I want to talk about this is because I was tuning into the scaling Ethereum hackathon slash event. This is the broader event that Rayanism is attached to. For the last two weeks now, Ben and I have been talking about the Rayanism project, which is this project to expedite Ethereum's merge to proof of stake and the network's transition to this more eco-friendly, energy-efficient blockchain protocol. And within scaling Ethereum, there's this special track for creating a test network for Rayanism, where the aim of the whole Rayanism hackathon track is to build a working a multi-client test network that has the functionalities of the merge built in. It's also got sharding, which is the scalability solution already built in. And we've seen a lot of work go into Rayanism over the last couple of weeks. I mean, Ben, are you think we're looking good for actually seeing a test network by the end of the hackathon, which is supposed to be what, in like mid-May? There's the cutoff deadline for all the hacking teams to get in their projects so far with the activity that you're seeing, are, are we looking good to, to seeing a test network built by that time? Yeah, looking good. So I think there will be a merge demo by the end of the week uh, with quite a few clients on it. So it was set back a little bit by the weekend's uh, incidents, but on the ETH2 side, I think all of the teams are involved one way or another. Uh, and on the ETH1 side, Geth in the form of Catalyst is what they're calling their sort of merge client. Uh, the Basu team, who are my colleagues in Consensus, and the Nethermind team are, are all working on it. And actually, as of today, you can set up your own testnet. There's a site uh, where you can find instructions to run, say, Teku and Nethermind or Lighthouse and Catalyst are currently working, and you can build your own sort of private testnet. So the goal is, as I understand it, by the end of this week to have a very short-lived, maybe one day combined testnet with everybody on it. And then maybe next week, something a little more longer lived. And after that, then moving on to putting sharding in place, which is another big project. 
and with stretch goal is to put the optimism roll up on top and then demo the whole sort of next generation system all working together. Nice. It's a really positive update. When you were saying, you know, first comes the merge, which is putting together the ETH one client, the proof of work client, and having it run together with the proof of stake clients, building out that test network where Ethereum today, as we know it, is running on a proof of stake protocol, and then implementing sharding, which is the scalability solution to make Ethereum fees, which are just incredibly high right now, finally go down considerably. That sounds very much like the timeline that Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum, presented during conference, the Scaling Ethereum hackathon slash conference. He gave a little presentation on what we should be expecting. You also attached optimistic rollouts to as kind of like the third thing to work on, to hack on. Can you explain a little bit about what optimistic rollouts out, rollups are and how that fits into this? schedule, this timeline of events. We've got the merge, we've got sharding, and this last third buzzword, optimistic rollout. Tell me a little bit more about that last third one. So rollups are the scaling solution for Ethereum, uh, at least in the short to medium term. And they are being rolled out <laughs> and on the Ethereum one chain now. So you can use ZK Sync and uh, other solutions are available. But rollups really come into their own when they can ingest a lot of sharded data. They rely on having data availability on the layer one on the blockchain, and then they can really multiply the power of that data to deliver a huge transaction throughput. So while rollups will accelerate transactions and reduce fees on Ethereum as we know it now, they will do that uh, on steroids uh, once sharding is in place and will deliver just vast scalability. So the idea is to prove that concept. Nobody's sort of hooked up a system yet. It's still on paper. And the idea is to prove that concept and demonstrate some of the, the power of rollups using sharded data during the hackathon as part of the project. Gotcha. So just so that I'm understanding correctly, I mean, right now we've got Ethereum as we know it today, Rollups are beginning to be rolled out, which is this way to more rapidly confirm and finalize different operations on the blockchain in a way that's a lot quicker than what we're seeing today on Ethereum. But the reason why we haven't seen it really impact fees is that the way to get rollups to really start reducing the amount of fees on the network, start to process transactions a lot quicker, we need to have more than one network. We need to have a bunch of mini blockchains called these shards living on Ethereum and rollups be an integral part of every single one of those networks. So those networks are all processing data. They're all processing operations, transactions on Ethereum for decentralized applications. Within each one of these chains, you've got the added functionality of rollups being able to condense these kind of cryptographic information a lot more quickly. We're seeing it its effects, part of its effects already on Ethereum today. But the plan, the vision forward is that after the merge is going to be able to start spawning these mini blockchains, these shards in which you can also start processing data there and have these rollups working. Is that is that right, Ben? Did I do a good job of summarizing that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's all about the data consensus. So rollups rely on just data inputs to do their work and you need to store that data on chain. Today, 
the blockchain comes to consensus on about three kilobytes of data per second, which is pretty slow. Uh, with sharding, we're looking at something around three megabytes per second, so up to a thousand times more data that's available on chain to feed these rollups. And that will give the acceleration. The rollups are like mini blockchains themselves, but they have the full security of the, the foundational Ethereum chain. So it's a very nice model. There will be lots of experimentation and lots of different varieties. It's going to be a little chaotic for a while, but uh, eventually things will settle down. And I'm optimistic that we will have an extremely scalable yet still secure system in the medium term. It's the dream. I feel like this is the vision that we've been talking about for it's so happening. many years, so many years now. It's great to hear that a test network is in the works. I want to talk a little bit more about the security aspect that you just mentioned, Ben, because in Vitalik's presentation last Thursday or Friday at Scaling Ethereum, he talked about how after the merge happens, there's going to be need for a cleanup upgrade, this post-merge hard fork that happens fairly soon, right after Ethereum transitions to proof of stake, to be able to remove certain redundancies of the network. Now that Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0 are not two separate parallel blockchains, they're going to have to be put together. There's ideas around making sure that withdrawals are starting to be enabled for validators, which is like, great. You can start to actually use the rewards that you've earned as a validator and start trading them on exchanges and whatnot. But there was also something about replacing Ethereum's existing serialization format, RLP, to SSZ. And that was definitely something that I wanted to talk about a little bit on the podcast. Why is that important? What about Ethereum are we replacing here? Because mm. a lot of these redundancies, a lot of the things planned for the post-merge upgrade are really focused on, on getting Ethereum 2.0 to merge correctly with Ethereum. But this sounds like changing something about Ethereum's existing model to fit Ethereum 2.0. Mm, are you ready for this? <laughs> uh, serialization, it's something that computer science geeks like to argue about endlessly. It's one of those uh, really? topics that everyone has an opinion on. Uh, it took us a year, I think, to agree on a serialization scheme for Ethereum 2. So the idea is that you have these data structures, which are quite rich, like the state of the blockchain or a transaction, and it has structure within it. But sometimes you need to store that in the database, or you need to communicate it to another player on the network, or you need to send the data to Block Explorer, something like that. And so you need to take this rich data structure and serialize it, just turn it into a list of data. And it turns out that there are many, many exciting ways to do this. RLP is recursive length prefix, which Vitalik invented before Ethereum became reality. And it's very clever, but limited in what you can do with it. And it has inefficiencies, like you basically have to decode the whole data before you can access any part of it. You can't index randomly into part of the uh, RLP just to look at a small subset of, of the data. Whereas SSZ or SSZ is designed with different goals in mind. Uh, it's very efficient to calculate a digest, a hash, just a root, which is a, a small amount of data that represents the, the whole big data blob. And another thing is that we can extract parts of it and analyze them very efficiently. So we think that SSZ is a good format. The first S stands for simple. And the idea is we don't really want to be messing around with two serialization formats. You know, unifying to one is good just from maintainability. 
And the other thing is that we want to have just one way of accessing data that's been serialized. This is all really important information. If any listener is going to be listening in on developer meetings, developer calls, community calls when it comes to Ethereum, because these kinds of terminology, they do come up every so often and rarely is it explained. So I just <laughs> want to give a shout out to people listening in on this podcast that this is helpful tools to start getting into the conversation and participating in Ethereum community. I do want to say though, that one thing that Vitalik mentioned about the SSE RLS is that it's supposed to be a launch pad for starting to work on Ethereum's state problem, which is another upgrade that's going to be upcoming after Ethereum gets its scalability, mm -hmm. after these security improvements happen. There's also this issue with Ethereum's state in that the amount of data, the amount of archive transaction history that is accumulating on Ethereum is just getting out of control. Like we've got terabytes of just too much information that people who want to connect to the Ethereum network for the first time have to download. And it just takes too long. There's too much of a burden, a resource load for everybody on the network to be able to carry so much data. So there's this idea of trying to partition off and archive some of the historical transactions of Ethereum and be able to recall it in a more efficient way. You've also got talk about improvements for Ethereum's virtual machine, which is basically the structure that allows decentralized application deployment. You've got these theories around perhaps we change Ethereum's proof of stake protocol. We're using this theory. It's called Casper. There's a certain acronym for it, but maybe trying <laughs> yeah. a more theoretical version of Casper, a different version of proof of stake, try implementing that onto Ethereum. Got talk around trying to make Ethereum quantum resistant. Let me tell you, Ben, there was so many things on Ethereum's roadmap <laughs> after just the sharding and optimistic rollups, which literally took like 10 minutes to explain. When are we going to get to the end here? I, I was envisioning that Ethereum 2.0 was kind of the foreseeable end that after this, you know, Ethereum would really go into maintenance mode. But there seems to be just a lot more that we're going to have to continue to talk about when it comes to Ethereum finally reaching its production-ready world computer phase. With all of these improvements on the way, especially as something as important as like state management, how far are we talking in terms of timeline <laughs> and will we ever get there? Yeah, it was classic Vitalik, wasn't it? I mean, proper visionary. I get, you know, it sort of chimes with the Ethereum origin story, right? He looked at what was available and it, it just didn't do what he, he wanted to do. It, so, you know, he invented Ethereum and from day one, it was designed to be extensible, to grow, to evolve. And that's still going on. Yeah, Vitalik's a great optimist. He always thinks things will be quicker than they are. And many of these things we've talked about for years, uh, but the vision is big. There's time, right? I mean, we don't have to do this this year or next year. I mean, within the next 10 years is fine. He's keen to say that eventually we'll reach a sort of steady state and then everything will be running smoothly and efficiently enough at the base layer and scalably enough that we can then freeze the protocol and push everything else out of the protocol. Well, apart from he keeps you at a job in that, I mean, core developers, protocol developers, Ethereum 1 and Ethereum 2.0, it doesn't look like you guys are going to get a vacation anytime soon because after you've got the merge, you've got the post-merge hard fork cleanup you got to focus on. And then after that, you've got to really focus intensely on the sharding, on the scalability part. And then after that, you've got the roll-up. And then after that, you've got a couple other things to really deal with. And the reason why it comes out like a one-by-one -one thing, Vitalik was saying, and that 
he wants developers to be able to focus on one thing really well and make sure that that's really solid and secure, not try and do everything all at once because it introduces the possibility for bugs and hacks to be a lot higher. And with so much value already accrued on Ethereum, it's like, you want to do this right. It's really exciting times. And it just reminded me that there's so much more to Ethereum than just this merge to proof of stake. There's a lot coming after it that there we got to stay on our toes for. <laughs> totally. And he, uh, he even mentioned Ethereum 3.0. So <laughs> that's maybe one way we could brand it, but uh, it's great. I mean, I, I love this idea that we keep on growing and evolving. It keeps me engaged and there are lots of very interesting problems to solve. And I, I'm really happy to be part of a community that doesn't sort of rest and say, okay, we, we're finished. And you know, let's uh, let's go and sit on an island somewhere sipping cocktails. It's uh, much more interesting to have something uh, innovative to do every day and to think about. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy with this vision. You're right. We're cautious. We want to do it incrementally. We want to do it safely. It's one reason for splitting out the merge from this post-merge cleanup. So we're not kind of tackling everything at once and the developers can focus on doing one thing and doing it really well before moving on to the next thing is de-risking it and so on. Yeah, for me, this is the essence of the Ethereum community is that we're, we're builders, we're inventors, and we're always pushing the boundaries. And I love it. Speaking of which, if we're going to be going up to Ethereum 3.0, I mean, Ben, you're going to need a bigger team. And I hear that you are hiring for your expanding team at Consensus to build Ethereum 2.0, Teku client, make sure that it's up to snuff with all the upcoming upgrades on the horizon. Are there certain hackathon devs or teams that really impress you that you were like, oh, we should recruit you? Are these events that you go to thinking they'd be good recruitment platforms? I mean, how are you doing with looking for an expansion of your team? Is it slim pickings out there? <laughs> Everyone's hiring at the moment. So it's challenging, but we've got uh, some good uh, interests. Thank you for, for mentioning it. I appreciate it. So <laughs> if uh, anyone wants to get in touch. And, you know, so one of the challenging things is often all the different people hiring at the moment, we're all sort of fishing in the same pool, right? And it's competing for the same people. One of the things we've done with our products in Consensus is built in more traditional languages. So Teku and Besu are mainnet clients are both in Java, and there are literally millions of Java devs out there. And there are probably some really bored Java devs working in enterprise web to Java stuff at the moment who would be uh, interested in a new challenge. And, and these are the people I'd love to hear from, people who don't know blockchain yet. They may know distributed systems a bit. They're working in some enterprise stuff, but you know they want a new challenge and to be part of our decentralized future. We, we need to grow the pool rather than just all trying to compete with each other. Yeah, we're scouting out call out for people who are working in the traditional side of tech right now and are feeling very bored in their jobs, which I'm sure are many of you. <laughs> Come join the exciting, never-ending story of Ethereum 2.0 development. Thank you guys so much for tuning in again to Mapping Out ETH 2.0. Ben and I are going to be back next Thursday with more insights on proof of stake and ongoing Ethereum development. If you have any questions you would like answered on this podcast, you can connect with each of us on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes please give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. And subscribe to our newsletters. Uh, I write an update every other week on Ethereum 2.0 development. You can read more about the most recent incident. That's at eth2.news or follow me on Twitter and I'll let you know when the next one is out. 
And you can subscribe to Christine's weekly newsletter called Valid Points by going to coindesk.com. See you next week for Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye. Bye. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. We are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history. Join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at Consensus by Coindesk. A live virtual experience of leaders, change makers, virtual reality meetups, keynotes from Ray Dalio, Gary Vaynerchuk, and much more. Get an up-close look at the boom in crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance, and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. Coindesk Reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com. We'll see you there.